This is The Political Scene, a weekly conversation with New Yorker writers and editors about politics. It's Friday, October 5th. I'm Dorothy Wickenden, executive editor of The New Yorker. Today is the fifth episode of The Challengers, a monthly segment devoted to the 2018 midterm races across the country. We're focusing on candidates who are challenging establishment figures as a way to discuss upheavals outside Washington and to define issues that are shaping the futures of the two parties. This month, the Sun Belt. Democrats have engaged in surprisingly competitive races across the Southeast and Southwest in states that Trump carried in 2016. Democrats hope to retake the Senate in Texas, Tennessee, and Arizona, among other states. Last Saturday in Austin, Senate candidate Beto O'Rourke hosted the largest single-candidate political rally in the country since Trump's victory in 2016. During a Facebook Live update with his supporters this summer, O'Rourke talked about the grassroots organizing that's driving his campaign. It's extraordinary because we can't find uh, many other Senate races um, that have raised this kind of money in a three-month period. We can't find one in Texas maybe ever that has done this. And to do it in this way through small-dollar contributions uh, is, um, that's, that's what democracy looks like. Um, that, that's how we get this back. That's how we win Texas. That's how we do something great for the country. Ben Wallace-Wells joins me to discuss the new progressivism in the Sun Belt and how Democrats' most powerful donors are supporting candidates who appeal to younger voters. Hi, Ben. Welcome back. Hi, hi. Nice to be with you. I want to start with Beto O'Rourke because the mainstream media seems to have fallen in love with him. And he is, as everyone now knows, challenging Ted Cruz for his Senate seat in Texas. What is so electrifying about his candidacy? His youth and his his forthrightfulness in each of these states, but in Texas particularly, it's not just that Trump won the state, you know, it's that you have to go back, you know, a quarter century to find a Democrat who was elected to uh, the Senate. You have to go back years to find a Democrat elected governor. Most of those races have been uncompetitive. Most of the times that Democrats have nominated a candidate for uh, a statewide office in Texas, they have been a kind of transactional, pro-business moderate. O'Rourke is different. He is young and he is energetic. I think key to, to who he is, is that he has, like many of these other candidates across the region, emphasized that he is a progressive, he is a liberal, you know, and he is the first politician to call attention, really, uh, to the crisis with families at the border. He has called for universal health care. You know, he's touted his uh, F rating from the NRA. He has called for just a much more expansive social welfare program in, in, in Texas. In, in large part, I think, you know, he is a good candidate, he is talented, he is charismatic, but he is forthrightly progressive in a way that Texans uh, have not seen in a generation. And how is this playing in the more rural regions of the state? I understand in the, in the cities like Austin, you know, that he would have a big following, but it seems less obvious in some of these other areas. Yeah, I think that's basically right. I think that, you know, his his vote is, is going to have to be a, a liberal urban vote plus you know, finding enough uh, moderates uh, to flip in, in suburbs of Houston and, and Dallas. O'Rourke is from El Paso. He's he's made a very big deal about going everywhere. He's he's tried to project a kind of Obama-like optimism, you know, about the future. 
But, you know, as a basic matter, his his coalition in Texas is is not going to be full of small towns where people love guns and God. You know, his his coalition is going to be uh, in Austin and in San Antonio, in Dallas, in Houston. I think the, the thing that gives him hope uh, is that those cities have uh, grown immensely um, over the past couple of decades and have grown more progressive. Candidates like O'Rourke have run to the left, but other Senate candidates in the Sun Belt, like Kristen Sinema is one that I'm thinking about that we've talked about on yes. this program in Arizona, and Phil Breesden in Tennessee are running pretty moderate campaigns. So describe the overall trend in progressivism in the South and what it reflects about some of the tensions in the Democratic Party about how far left some candidates feel it's wise to go. The three best cases for a progressive kind of resurgence in the in the Sun Belt are O'Rourke's candidacy in Texas, uh, Stacey Abrams' candidacy for governor of Georgia, and Andrew Gillum's candidacy for for governor of Florida. Uh, both Gillum and Abrams sort of fit the the O'Rourke mold. Uh, you know, Gillum is is significantly more progressive even even than O'Rourke. Um, he's called for, to abolish ICE. He's uh, for impeaching the president. He's called for a dramatic raise in the income in the corporate tax in Florida. He is a, a sort of recognizable progressive anywhere. And it's also worth saying that he, like Abrams, is African American. Right. He and Abrams would, would be both the first African American governors of their states ever. In in addition to being the most progressive candidates that we can recall um, in Florida and Georgia, respectively. I think that what what is happening there is that. You have a generation of candidates who are starting to come up in states that are, because they have been growing so substantially over the last 15 years, have gotten younger and whose cities have grown more progressive and where the Democratic base, at least, much more tightly resembles the Democratic base around the country. Uh, Cinema is, is a more complicated character, as, as you suggest. She started out uh, as a member of the Green Party, her political career. You know, she uh, is a bisexual. She's an atheist. And these things are sort of signatures or sort of social signatures that you would just not expect for a statewide Democratic candidate from Arizona uh, in recent memory. But in her political career, as she has you know, gone through her 30s and now her early 40s, she has tacked a bit to the center. And in this campaign, you know, she is emphasizing her, her bipartisan record in Congress and in Arizona. But I think the, the, the general pattern that you see across these states is that there is a sort of cultural base for Democrats to run as liberals that you just haven't seen in the South uh, and the Southwest in, in recent memory. Well, and especially in Arizona and Florida, you think about the snowbirds and these yeah. elderly white people who generally are very conservative Yeah, and vote. Yeah. And, you know, the, the demographic pattern in, in those places has been that they've gotten more diverse uh, as they've grown and other, uh, other parts of the country have declined in population. They have gotten younger. Again, this is sort of more concentrated in the cities. It's more concentrated in the Democratic base. And the real test for in November is whether those new progressive sort of bases in, in places like Orlando and San Antonio and Houston uh, and Atlanta and uh, to an extent Phoenix uh, whether those 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 younger kind of progressive cores will, will actually turn out. 
There's also a lot of speculation about whether the midterms are going to be a referendum on Trump and disagreement among Democrats who are running about how the party should be responding. Could you talk a little bit about maybe one of these candidates and how he or she is handling that? I think for some of these candidates, and, and maybe Andrew Gillum, uh, as the one I know best, is, is, is a good place to start. Andrew Gillum is 39 years old. He's African-American. He's the mayor of Tallahassee, Florida. I think for some of these candidates, um, Trump is a signal of the sort of generational problem with American politics. He embodies not just division, but extremism. When Gillum goes around Florida and talks to audiences about what they're fighting against, even though he is running for governor, you know, he's very quick to link his opponent, Ron DeSantis, uh, to Trump. DeSantis has been running, you know, very much in the Trump mold. He, like O'Rourke, takes great energy from the opposition to, you know, a border wall. Uh, he talks about the excesses of ICE, you know, Gillum, for instance, has called to abolish ICE. So even though that is a, a, a statewide race, you know, it's not one where a vote for Brett Kavanaugh, for instance, is, is on the ballot. It, Trump's presence and, and, and the extremism of, of Trump's agenda uh, has has given Gillum a kind of clear oppositional point. And how has Gillum handled the issue of race? After he won the primary, am I right about this? The Republican nominee, Ron DeSantis, told voters not to monkey up the state and then, of course, denied that the remark was racist. I, the, the, the way that DeSantis responded to Gillum's victory was, was absolutely astonishing, uh, as you say. Gillum has run a campaign in the primary that was premised on, on a coalition of young people and minority voters. That is basically the Democratic coalition that these other candidates have leaned on as well. You know, at an, event, an environmental event the other day, he said that, you know, what matters is not the color of my skin, but the color of the red-green algae that's, that's clogging, uh, clogging Florida's waters. But basically, he has leaned into race. You know, he has uh, made stand your ground in opposition to the stand your ground law, uh, a centerpiece of his campaign. And he has, you know, emphasized the young African-American men who have been uh, shot and killed uh, by police officers in Florida, going back to Trayvon Martin. Abrams and O'Rourke as well, the language of, of social justice um, is very uh, uh, present in their campaigns. You know, they talk about mass incarceration and, and, and the problems of the criminal justice system. And it's sort of hard to imagine the rhetoric of any of those three candidates without the kind of influence of the Black Lives Matter movement. It's true of Stacey Abrams as well. So women are sure to turn out in big numbers in November, especially after the Brett Kavanaugh nomination brawl. Talk a little bit about how some of these candidates are appealing to them. I think that one thing that has been at the center of uh, each of these candidates' campaigns has been an emphasis on gun control and on, on the extremity of the NRA. Andrew Gillum calls black women the saviors of the universe <laughs> because of, of how loyal they have been as voters to the Democratic Party and to progressive candidates. You know, Stacey Abrams is obviously a, is herself an emblem of maybe a little bit of the progress that African-American women are beginning to make in, in leadership roles in the Democratic Party. The moral issues of the moment, whether they're around gun control, whether they're around reproductive uh, rights and access, whether they're around LGBTQ rights, these are things that these candidates are speaking directly to. It's, it's a big part of 
why you know we say that they are they are more progressive than anything that's that's sort of come before in recent memory in those states. It's a big part of what these candidates are are, are speaking to, uh, in a way that uh, you know prior Democrats might have been fuzzier or, or weaker or more compromised on. And getting back to the saviors of the universe, it, yes. in the South, black women have been launching really impressive organizing campaigns. And yes. so I assume that was part of Doug Jones's Senate victory in Alabama special election, where 98 percent of black women voted for him. It's astonishing. Yeah, it, not just 98 percent of, of black women who turned out, but the turnout from African-American women was extraordinary. And the Jones campaign is something that, you know, Democratic operatives and organizers across the South point to as an organizing model. You know, you see much more active organizing efforts being led both by nonprofit organizations targeting African-American women voters, but also by, you know, historically black sororities. Um, and so I think that, yeah, in, in the Trump era, uh, there is, you know, a, a very active organizing effort that's that's sort of both grassroots and and not that aims to to turn out uh, African-American women in the same way that they turned out during the, the Doug Jones Roy Moore race in Alabama. So a, a lot of money has poured into the Florida campaigns in particular, and it's that's probably a good place to talk about what big funders in both parties are up to. Tom Steyer, the hedge fund manager and left-wing Democratic donor, has supported Gillum's campaign. Soros has been involved in funding a lot of the Democratic progressive campaigns. Could you talk a little bit about to what extent that seems to be making a difference in states that Trump carried? Yeah, I think it's a it's a really important and underappreciated aspect of of what's happening with with the resistance. You know, the Democratic movements this year are organic. They are grassroots. They are driven by a lot of rage about what has happened in the Trump era. But they all they are also funded by a, a pair of billionaires. You know, Soros and Steyer in particular. Uh, Steyer and Soros both put more than a million dollars into Gillum's campaign. Uh, those around him told me he just could not have competed in Florida for the Democratic nomination without that money. Gillum himself is somebody who told me he has dined with George Soros in his in his house in New York. He has he has been in Tom Steyer's house in San Francisco to to meet with him. There's a really interesting and kind of complicated thing happening here. Some of the billionaires who are most influential in Democratic primaries have themselves radicalized. You know, when I met with Tom Steyer in Boston uh, two months ago, his whole spiel was about the generational transformation in the Democratic Party, how much more progressive it was becoming and how he wanted to fund that. Gillum was was sort of his his prime example. Um, Abrams and Cinema, I believe he's, he's putting money into two. So given how closely you've been watching so many of these races, I am going to ask you to be a pundit here. And how confident are you that the Democrats could retake the House? I'm pretty confident. You know, I think that the places where seats are really up for grabs are played pretty nicely into the Democrats' hands this this time. You know, there are a lot of seats in uh, suburban districts in California and Texas and, you know, Illinois, you know, all over the country in Pennsylvania that are up for grabs. And, and the geography of those is pretty striking. There are, you know, a couple of dozen seats where the Republican incumbent, you know, just cannot get 50 percent in any poll, which is a, a, a really strong indicator that the votes won't be there for them come election day. The Senate is, is obviously a, a much uh, more difficult ask and a little bit more idiosyncratic because there are, there are uh, 
there are fewer races. But I, I would say, you know, most of the prediction systems say it's about a, a 75% chance that Democrats take the House. I would I would be maybe even a little bit more optimistic than that uh, for the Democrats. Well, I, I swore to myself that I would not raise Brett Kavanaugh on this podcast, but <laughs> I, we, I have to because I want to know what you think about – there's been a lot of speculation in the last couple of days about – whether the the Kavanaugh brouhaha it could be helpful to Republicans who in these some of these races who had been nervous up until then, I, I think it's possible. Um, I think that Republicans desperately want it to be the case. Uh, they have been searching for something to get uh, to make their voters think that this midterm is important. There were a number of memos a couple of weeks ago that said that Trump's own relentless positivity about the elections, about a red wave coming, made conservative voters sort of disinclined to get out there and vote because they thought it was a fait accompli. But we are still a month away. Uh, and the velocity at which the news has moved during the past two years. Not to mention the past two weeks. Yeah, my God, <laughs> you know, just the, the intensity of political life right now. Uh, I think we are a, a, a long way from knowing that we're going to see hundreds of thousands of, of Republican voters across the country who are not previously planning to come out to vote decide that something about the way the Democrats talked about Kavanaugh was so offensive to them that now, yes, they are motivated. I think the conventional wisdom is that if that does happen, it's going to help the, the Republicans a lot more in Senate races than in, than in House races. Because, you know, as we've talked about, the, the contested Senate seats are largely in, in, in rural and conservative states. The contested House seats uh, are not. They are in suburban moderate seats. So, uh, you know, I think that, that that's a reasonable expectation of, of the direction of Republican enthusiasm. Um, I'm just not sure that we could, we've seen anything to say with confidence that a month from now, um, given everything that might happen, there's still going to be a huge anger from Republicans and Democrats. But, you know, that's why they hold the votes. Thanks so much, Ben. Thanks. Ben Wallace-Wells is a staff writer and a regular contributor to TheNewYorker.com. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. You can subscribe to this and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app and find more political analysis and commentary on NewYorker.com. Feel free to rate and review The Political Scene on Apple Podcasts. This podcast is produced by Alex Barron, Jill Duboff, and Hannah Wilentz for NewYorker.com. I'm Dorothy Wickenden.